We are in the midst of a radical transformation throughout the construction industry. The trades should be the group helping to lead and evolve the industry. But how should the MEP trades position themselves as the leader of this change? Welcome to Bridging the Gap with Applied Software. I'm your host, Todd Wyant, and this is the show where we empower you to transform industries by championing innovation. Please feel free to interact with us by liking or commenting on this video. We'd love to hear from you. Today we are recording from MEP Force 2019 in San Antonio, where over 400 MEP trade professionals have come together to learn from each other. I'm excited to be joined by one of our keynotes, Josh Bone and Jonathan Marsh from Quezon. Welcome to the show, guys. Yeah, thanks for having us. It's yeah. great to be having us. Uh, can you guys start by giving kind of a, a little high-level overview of your background and who Quezon is? Um, well. I'm going to start with my background. Um, so just recently, I stopped being a contractor. I was a CTO okay. of uh, Spader Mechanical. I had been uh, head of their VDC, head of their engineering, had helped build that, had helped build their fab department and that type of stuff. And I, that had taken me about 12 years. So okay. when I left, I was, I was one of the owners, and I was their CTO. And right before that, um, I had done a decade as a consulting engineer, designing hospitals and schools and other mm -hmm. things like that. So I was kind of always in the trades or in, it, not in the trades, but in the industry. Okay. Um, but, but most recently I've been with a contractor and we, I just moved to Quezon. And um, I, I think Josh will tell you a little bit more about what kind of what kind of moved us to, to form Quezon um, because both of us were hearing a lot of the problems within the industry and we're mm -hmm. hearing them constantly and they were the same problems. Mm. And um, certainly me being a contractor, I, I felt a lot of the problems, a lot of the lack of resources um, a lot of the lack of understanding of technology, mm -hmm. and I saw it in other people on our job sites. And I realized that until everyone came up as an industry, some of the things that I wanted to do technologically weren't going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, part of me going into Quezon, which it was to help move the industry forward, help mm -hmm. really push technology, um, because once we get the industry moving, I, I think we can go way further than anyone's gone uh, by themselves. Mm. Interesting. What yeah, about you, Josh? so I've been around the industry coming up on 21 years this year, and I started initially with the architects mm -hmm. and doing 3D modeling well before it was BIM and started working with engineers saying, hey, you need a 3D model, and there's this term of parametric modeling and some things that we can do, and yeah. transitioned to helping the general contractors. I was working with Holder back in 2005, and we started doing some virtual mock-ups and starting the initial process of, of coordination. Mm. 13, 14 years ago now, and then I saw the light about six years ago that while the architects and engineers and GCs are so important, we're missing a massive opportunity with the trades and helping them understand how they fit in this role because mm -hmm. what we started to see is that constructability. Now these guys, this is a top-notch group. Mm -hmm. you, you look around this audience, it's not an easy audience to keynote to. Yeah. It's it's uh, it's amazing. It's, it's a scary audience. It is. It <laughs> is. Well, you guys audience. handled it very well during oh, the keynote. A lot of knowledge in this room and yeah. a lot of respect from both of our ends. Oh, yeah. that we changed our presentation last night and just really flipped the slides up and changed our wording. And because you know, what we understand is for off-site construction, you mm -hmm. know how big of a fan I am of off-site construction. Mm -hmm. It has to happen with constructible models, and yeah. that's this room. Mm -hmm. Nice. Uh, so during your talk, you laid out the change going on in the industry, and you guys did a really good job of pairing that change with a hopeful message of how to bring the trades to the leading role in that. Uh, I was wondering if you can kind of go into some recommendations about how trades should take that leading role. 
You know, I, I think the first thing that, that we need to understand as the trades start to come into technology is that this is not something that's going to happen overnight. Mm -hmm. And it definitely is something that, that, that grows on itself. Like one of the reasons, one of the things that I've seen, especially talking to a lot of the trades lately is there's still some building blocks that we need to, to accomplish within the industry mm -hmm. to get them ready to really take some of these big steps. Now your group that you have here right now, a lot of those big steps have already been taken and they're almost ready for the next step. Um, but with a lot of these, the, the trades, what we're looking at right now is you need to learn the skills that go along with understanding a model. Mm -hmm. You know, you really understand how to install pipe, but do you understand the model? Can you take a little time, spend it in the model, spend it in the, this planning stage? Because mm -hmm. really that's what we're doing when we build a model. We're building a virtual plan of how we're going to build the building. Sure. And we want to get the tradesmen involved in that. Because first, once they understand it, they start to use it as a tool. And once it's their tool, they don't take it out of their, you know, their tool belt. That's right. one of their favorite tools. I've had foremen that are um, close to retirement that have become completely obsessed with models. Once mm -hmm. they realize that they could lay it out six different ways and get exactly what they wanted, they, they get involved. So, I, I mean, I think a lot of the first steps are getting them into the models, letting them work in there for a while, letting them understand how that environment works. Mm -hmm. And once they accept that as a tool and feel comfortable there, um, they really seem to excel. Yeah, I think there's a fundamental flaw in the world that we look at today. When you look at a hospital and you understand that the mechanical contractor and the electrical contractor on the job mm -hmm. own about 50% of the total value of the cost, that when you start to, to break that down, why would you not involve them in the contracts and the right. discussions much earlier in the process? They're such a critical part of the process to deliver a job through a traditional design bid build mm -hmm. and bring them in so late into the game, it's a fundamentally flawed, flawed process. Mm -hmm. we, we are broken. Right. So we, we have to look, I'm not saying bring everyone into the party, but if there is the priority traits of concrete and mechanical and electrical and these, these things need to be addressed in a different way than the awnings of the building. When you treat all the subcontractors like subcontractors equally, right. and you look at that as, as not really understanding the value that they bring to the project, I think we're messing up. Mm -hmm. uh, we're, we're missing a big part of the opportunity. And we talked about DFMA quite a bit. This is... Yeah. And, and DFMA grew out of the trades. DFMA did not grow out of engineering firms. It really grew out of the fact that once the trades started getting into the model, they started saying, well, wait a second. We, we, can, we can wrap this up differently. We can build different skids. We can build different fabrications. And it really did move. I mean, what the engineer wanted was, is, is like we said up there, they wanted us not to run into walls or each other. Mm -hmm. That was their goal. Let's not run into walls, not run into each other, and not make my ceilings close to the floor. Right. That was their goal. But what we found is as the trades sort of adapt to this and more and more people that build on a regular basis do it, is they're looking for something that's slick. They're looking to really sharpen that building and make it an efficient building. Mm -hmm. And and that's the fun part. Like, I, I think right now the biggest push that I see for design for manufacturing is really coming out of some of the trades where they're saying, we need to get involved earlier because what I had to build was horrible. It was horrible. Right. I, I wanted to be up the front saying, listen, you got to add an extra course of block so that I have 12 more inches so that I can make this beautiful and work well for you. Mm -hmm. And I could have saved you tons of money. Every time I go to the job site and I talk to coordinators, they're always saying, I could have saved them tons of money if. Right. If this, if that. And it's never something huge. But it's always something where we needed to get, like you said, the stakeholders that have the biggest stake involved in the earliest stages. Interesting. Uh, you guys also were talking about semi-automation up on the stage. Uh, why do you think there's been kind of a, a 
pushback, if you will, of embracing uh, robotics in the industry instead of really getting out in front of it like you guys were encouraging. Yeah, so uh, when, when you see 3D printing, you see robotics, and you see some of the things that are happening in China, is, is there's usually initial fear that's involved with that, yeah. that you perceive that as a threat. And what we challenge the group to see today is the opportunity in these things. That mm -hmm. you know, there's, we, we're seeing these opportunities where, you know what, I want to fit up a flange and a robot can go in and use a robotic arm and weld that into place. That's, taking, that's perceived as taking labor hours away from a person. Mm -hmm. But we went through the statistics. We talked about the Mason's Union mm -hmm. and the statistics, how far they're down in their numbers. As a whole, the industry across the board, not only the, the trades, but the architects and engineers, the designers, right. the numbers are way down. We don't have the resources today to do the work at the level that we need to. We're going to have to embrace some of these technologies. We can't look at it as diverting labor hours away from the job. It's the fact that we need to have that abundance mindset, that there's plenty of work to do. Mm -hmm. And if we can learn how to do it and, and really have more certainty in our budgets and our schedules, it's going to lead to more work with other owners mm -hmm. That now because that certainty comes into play and it really impacts their bottom line. So sure. I, I see it as a massive opportunity more so than, than a direct threat to labor hours. That's a mindset that we have to shift. Yeah, and, and I, w I would add that I, that I met a lot of people that do like automation. Mm -hmm. And it's always the same thing. It, it, they like the automation when they feel they own it. So I, I, had, I had a fab shop foreman that I've met, and, and I would say the fab shop foreman that I was closest to, um, he really owned the tools that he had that were automation tools. Mm -hmm. They were his tools. And I found that there was no fear in his mind in adding a tool to his arsenal. Mm -hmm. But what, where the fear was coming with the people that didn't understand how the tool works, and I think it's similar to technology. If you don't understand how it works, if it's not your tool, mm -hmm. then, then, then you feel threatened by it. But really, you know, I mean, there are tools that, that they use that almost automate things all the time that they would never think of doing without. You know, right. you would not take a, a shovel and mix all your cement by shovel. Not going to do it, right? Sure. It's impractical. But are we losing work? We're not losing work. You know, but because they feel they own that tool. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and I think that that's something that we're going to try to do is encourage ownership of the tools. You own that plasma cutter. You own the pipe cutter. You own the spin closed machine. You own these things. Mm -hmm. They're tools to help you do your job better, faster, and more accurately. And, and what I've seen with the foreman and what I've seen as reactions are when they feel they own that tool, there's no problem. And when mm -hmm. they don't, they feel threatened by it. Yeah, it's that fear of the unknown. It's the fear of the unknown for sure. Are there certain places that you guys would uh, kind of say as your go-to for education on trying to kind of demystify? this change? Well, we do a lot of research. So I, I, I can say we're in a position that we read a lot, we bounce mm -hmm. a lot of ideas off of each other. We brought up a number of concepts in the conversation today about, we talked about agile, we talked about a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. We talked about flexibility and adaptability. Yeah. The thing I would say is I, I think a lot of it kind of has to come on the person. Mm -hmm. And you've got to learn your language how to speak to the leadership in your company, mm -hmm. how to speak to those below you in your company. Yeah, it, it's, it's ongoing. I, I think it's, like we said, the sharpening of the blade. Mm -hmm. it, it's little things. And, and I think sometimes we talk transparency. Mm -hmm. That's not easy for me. I'm constantly working on being more open, being more transparent, because what I've found is it always comes back. And, and it, it's like paying it forward, trying to hold sure. on to some of this research that I'm doing. 
is I get so much from going to these conferences. It's been a great thing for me. It's honestly, I go to all these conferences. I tell you, it's selfish. Oh yeah. I learn at a faster rate. So yeah. who do we learn? You know, I mean, we learn from our peers. Ninety percent of the time, we're learning about it from our peers. Because if you go to the person who's producing whatever you know technology it is, they do give you sort of the the very shiny version of what this can do. Sure. And and then you go to the people that are using it, and you find out now it's still useful, it's still good, but it's not. It's not that shiny. And so I would say most of the time when I'm looking at how to understand technology, I am coming to places like this. And I'm talking to my peers. And, you know, when we're here making, you know, making friends and understanding those contacts and, and, and what they're into, you know, and people are willing to share at a place like this. Because mm -hmm. all of us are trying to sort of build our set of knowledge about the technology that's out there. Mm -hmm. you know? Very cool. Uh, so your, your talk, as I mentioned, it was really hopeful, I think, on, on the future of, of the trades. So why shouldn't the trades really view this as uh, kind of a, a daunting threat with all this change going on, fear of the unknown, like we talked about, kind of lay out that, that hopeful case for the trades? Well, I, I will tell you this. I think that, you know, when we presented it today, mm -hmm. we presented the same stuff that would seem scary to other people. And I think the difference is this group views it as a challenge. Mm -hmm. And this group feels that they have the tools and they have the knowledge and, and really the drive to, to beat this. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things that happens in the trades is sometimes they don't feel like they have the empowerment to sort of keep up. Mm -hmm. You know, there's a lot that's thrown You know, I, when you are on a job site, there is so much more thrown at you than when you're in an office. Sure. It's just the way it is. So in the midst of, of chaos, saying yet another thing is, is sometimes hard. So sometimes you look at those things and it's like, I... I don't want to deal with that. Mm -hmm. I don't, I'm going I'm to let that go. And after you let it go long enough, it becomes something that, that, that's, that's a bit more scary. So, you know, I, I think one of the things that, that we're doing to try to make it encouraging is we're trying to get it out there in front of them and say, here's other people just like you, mm -hmm. and they're doing it, and they're doing it successfully. And one of the other things we're trying to do is make sure that we're giving simple and direct answers, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I think that talking to people that are actually using it, talking to people um, that are, are have implemented it already in their business, that really helps keep everything very hopeful because mm -hmm. you see people that are successfully doing it and they're sitting right there. And you understand that, that this can be done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I look at, at this room and they've had a lot of risk pushed down on them. Mm -hmm. that, that's, that mindset, we call it the trades, and that's what they are, but mm -hmm. uh, to a lot of people on the job, they're subcontractors. And that risk gets pushed down to the subs. Mm -hmm. So it's almost a necessity that we have to figure this out. Mm -hmm. There's going to be RFIs that are not answered. We're going to accept that risk and we're going to build it regardless. Mm -hmm. There's going to be things that happen that we have to pivot and we have to find a way of making up this gap that we have now that we have to do this rework or this thing's going to happen. So in this room, you have that mindset of mm -hmm. it's coming at us. How are we going to take that ball and, and learn how to, how to use it to right. the best of our ability? So while, yes, it, this, so much change is happening so quickly right now, it, it is intimidating. I, 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 there's going to be people in this room that are really good at adapting to change, but it's still coming so fast that you know, it, it, I say let's approach it with cautious optimism. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's not, it's not, it's not perfect. <laughs> it's far from perfect. It is cautiously optimistic because yeah. it's, it is and you know, a lot of things are going on out there. I think even in our personal lives, we hear about artificial intelligence and gene editing. Yeah. Uh, yeah, we're, we're hopeful that we make the right decision. <laughs> right? That's right. You know what? I'll tell you, I was way more scared of artificial intelligence when I hear about it 
than when I started working with it. Because yes. we're working mm -hmm. with it, you know, in construction, that's a major piece right now. Yeah. And you start working with it and you go, oh my gosh, this is not that scary. This is a bunch of rules. And, and I think that's yeah, one of the things. Machine learning algorithms, really. I mean, general artificial intelligence, as you learn more about it, it's really, it, yeah. it, it may not happen in our lifetime. The best and brightest minds are saying that. I think education goes a long way a in, long, in how you long perceive way. And, sure. and being involved with it, you know, people are afraid of things until they're involved with them. Right. You know. Well, it goes back to the fear of the unknown, like we were talking yeah. about. That's right. Yeah, I think that's Demystifying a huge part it. of it. That's mm -hmm. it. Nice. The Bridging the Gap podcast is brought to you by Evolve MEP. MEP construction software for Revit. Evolve's MEP software for Revit makes project collaboration fast, simple, and more productive, which in turn significantly reduces project risk and cost. Born from the reality of a lack of available skilled labor in the industry, Evolve MEP has transformed the MEP detailer workflow. It's time for MEP to harness the Revit platform to offer seamless collaboration like no other software before it. Visit EvolveMEP.com and let them know we sent you. Uh, a concept that you brought up during the keynote was that of the digital foreman. Uh, I really like that um, the phrase and the illustration that you guys used for it. Can you unpack that concept some more? Yeah, so uh, this is a concept we've been pushing for just a few weeks now, and we're trying to get a line of vocabulary. It's one of the things I brought up is that we've got to start aligning our vocabulary in the industry so uh -huh. that when we start having these conversations that it's a consistent message for the designers, for the owners, and for the general contractors. Mm -hmm. And what we see as the virtual foreman is it's so easy today to get caught up in your world, and a lot of the field will call you a, a CAD person, a yeah. drafter, or you know, maybe even you get called a detailer, but a virtual foreman is stepping out from behind that computer and really managing and leading mm -hmm. and, and, and taking that team and evolving and developing this and turning it into something so much more. You just, it, it's easy to get so much work thrown at you that you really lose track of the communication with the field, the communication with the foreman, the communication with the fab shop, and what we're advocating for is this holistic person that, that is really flattening the organization, like Clay talked mm -hmm. about this morning, yeah. that really is the touch point for the shop, for the estimating department, for all these things. This person, the, the, the VDC world that we're in, really has a lot of touch points in our organizations, and that's, that's, a, that's a tough role. It requires a lot of leadership skills yeah. to be good at that. And, and, it, and it represents an evolution that, that that really was was started back when draftsmen started moving from drawing drawings to building models. Mm. Okay, mm. we were building line drawings that represented a building, and now we're building digital models. Virtually constructed. Yeah, and, and drawings are sort of a, a separate thing that was going on. But but that 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 idea of the draftsman mm. is totally gone. And and when you think about it, how we define the positions within tells you a lot about what the purpose is. So a draftsman, his purpose was to make drawings. Mm -hmm. And a detailer, his purpose was to sort of dimension drawings and make them buildable. The virtual foreman, what, what he's doing is he's able to reach into the industry and, and touch all of those touch points that you talked about. He's able to take the data and leverage it so that, that we can use that effectively on job. And I think many of the people here are feeling the pressure to do all that, mm -hmm. but don't, don't know that it's really their job. There is there is a there's a level at which and I talked to talked to at least three people who said one of the biggest problems they had was drawing the line between project management 
and their VDC people. Mm -hmm. And because of the virtual foreman, that's what's happening. You know, the VDC people are really fluent in technology in a way that most people aren't. Mm -hmm. And they're really engaged in that model. I mean, completely engaged if you go into VR. They're, they're just, they're surrounded by model and data. And so they're in a unique position to sort of aggregate information out to that the, that business, and and I think that's what we're we're asking them to do is step forward. You know, we know the tools you've been using. We asked you to use new tools five years ago when when some of the modeling got a little bit more complex, mm -hmm. and then there was reality computing when all the scanning came in, and then there was digital layout, and now we're dealing with a lot more data. We have modeling that is capable of containing a lot more data, and we need somebody that's going to be sort of shepherding that to everyone. And that's what that virtual foreman is. Yeah, and, and has to have good soft skills as well. You yeah. know, that's, and that's the ability that's to communicate. Brand new. <laughs> that's brand new. And, and um, I will tell you that, so I, I've, I've known a ton of EDC people throughout my career. I, I hate to say that they tend to be very uh, introverted and stuck in their computer, but yeah. they tend to be that. And we're, we're saying that's not going to work anymore. You know, right now what we're looking for is we're looking for you to interact with all of the people that are part of this project because you're doing a powerful part of this planning, like mm. a super powerful part of this planning. Sure. Um, so, so you you can't just sit by yourself anymore and expect to get away just drawing um, with, with what's coming down the pipe. That's right. You're missing out on a massive opportunity when you do yeah. that. Yeah. I, I think the concept of digital foreman is really empowering to the trades if they uh -huh. really embrace it and. It rolls out. That's it. Yeah, it's it's not an easy position. Mm -hmm. It's not. It's not. But it is so greatly needed right now to, you know, understand. I mean, one of the things that a virtual foreman can do is have that knowledge to educate the team in the department to say, mm -hmm. by making this decision, you do realize we cut the amount of the linear feet of pipe in oh. half because they they understand that world of how it should be built, mm -hmm. the cost that's involved. And it's that ongoing role of, of really applying it in a way that makes sense and they mm -hmm. can communicate it and share it with the other trades during a coordination meeting. Sure, sure. Uh, so going back to DFMA that, that you guys mentioned earlier, uh, how do you start picturing a, a manufactured building when there really aren't a lot of examples out there? Uh, first, yeah. I mean, it's you know what? That is somewhere where I really think we have to look outside of the industry. Mm. You know, I, I think a lot of the best ideas that we mm. have in contracting don't come from contracting. They come when we look outside. Gotcha. And um, I know I've spent a lot of time looking at refineries, mm. looking at that industry because that industry is built offsite. I mean, that that industry is just built offsite. Ships, submarines, built offsite, mm. built offsite, and built modular because they they're going to come into dock and you want to replace pieces. Yeah. So there are other industries, sort of side industries, that are doing this already. Hmm. So we should be looking there. And I'll tell you, the more of them you look at, the more you start to see a pattern. This is what good DFMA looks like. Mm -hmm. And I, I think the big push right now with DFMA, though, is in order to do it right, we have to have more freedom to do it, and we know where that exists. That exists at the beginning of the project, not at the end. At the mm -hmm. end, we're already in the box. There's a lot of stuff in that box. We're doing the best with what we have. Right. We really, really, really want to push to the beginning. And you see that in subs. You see that in ships. You see that in refineries. The level of design that's taking place at the beginning of the project mm -hmm. is almost complete. It's mm -hmm. almost complete. And yeah. it's built to be modular. And it's mm -hmm. built to be manufactured off-site. So I think we have some good examples to go look at. Um, and I will tell you that my best industrial designer came from ship design. 
Mm -hmm. when he came in, he came in with a huge amount of ideas. And he's yeah. like, nope, we need to do this, we need to do this, we need to do this. And uh, he really changed how DFMA looked for our company. Interesting. And like, you could almost look at what he did and say, that looks like something that Ben did. Because that has that DFMA look to it. Mm -hmm. See, I, I, I see that as a, that's a great point. Looking outside of the industry and, and looking at shipyards, I think a lot of it has to go back to, to trust. So yeah. mm -hmm. there's a lot of trust that has to be in place to do this. Mm -hmm. For the fact for an owner to give this up and say that from day one, our trades are going to talk to our engineers. Mm -hmm. The fact that, you know, that they're going to be involved in this process from day one because they understand constructability. Right. We can't manufacture without knowing constructability. So it really has to be a molding. The contracts have to reflect this. There has to be a lot of trust in the process. You know, it, it, it's going to be uncomfortable the first time that we go through this, but I, I, I truly believe the amount of opportunity here to what we can start to do and think about this in a way that we compartmentalize this and know what to skid and what do we want to rack up and what do we want to do here and it's, it's, it's going to have a tremendous impact on, mm -hmm. on the way that we deliver a project, but the contracts have to reflect that as well. So it's going to take some progressive owners and let's go, let's go to the shipyards. Let's, let's take it as an example. I think that's a great idea. I think it goes back to your soft skills, too. You know, if we're going to have people that are going to lead that, mm -hmm. that are going to go to those owners, you need, again, to have that virtual foreman who has those soft skills who can go talk to ownership and, and, and really say, this is what I can do for you. Mm -hmm. You know, and, and Josh talked a lot about um, gathering data about what, what is the impact of design for manufacturing on the bottom line. Mm -hmm. and. You know, we're asking them to make these measurements and understand these things, not just to understand them, but so that they can talk about them with the owner and say, I, I can save you 50% if you bring me in early. I can save you 35% here. I can save you in wasted materials. I can save you in schedule. Redundancy. Building their case. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you think there's a little areas we can start it with uh, that I'm hearing this around the country right now, that the trades are actually working hand in hand with the engineers saying, mm -hmm. help us communicate your design intent. We'll work with you very closely. Mm -hmm. We'll put in, we'll build your models for you based off of this information. Uh -huh. You annotate it. Let's not produce a set of construction documents. Now, I understand there's permitting. There's a lot of things that go along with that, but I think we're still so wrapped up in these analog contractual obligations that we're missing the opportunity to do some big things if we could say, let's stop producing construction documents. Mm -hmm. Let's just stop, start building shop drawings and let's all work together and create a set of shop drawings from the very early stages. And if we can roll this out, let's start the underground. Let's go ahead and get the underground going and then we'll kind of figure some of these other areas out. And we can start very small. We don't mm -hmm. have to do the whole project as DFMA. We could just take certain portions of the project and deliver it in, in a DFMA way. And, and I got to tell you this, we were starting to do that when I left Spader. We were starting to see projects where they wanted to have a collaborative model up front. Mm -hmm. They didn't want drawings. They wanted a collaborative model. They gave us schematics, they're called PNIDs, and they wanted us to build skids off these PNIDs. Uh -huh. And they didn't want to build them because they know they don't build things well like that. We are really good at building things and skidding things. So why don't you let us lay it out? You'll tell us what you want to do. You will mm -hmm. review it. And it was a much better workflow. And again, before we produced drawings, before we went through all of that annotation, we had already worked through all the conceptual problems in a collaborative model. You mm -hmm. build trust. Yeah, you build trust. And, and you know, as you collaborate with these people, you also build an understanding of what they're looking for. Mm -hmm. You know, we now know that when they see a heat exchanger, they want to see it this way. When they see that type of skid, they want to see it that way. And you're really starting to take some of the engineering knowledge of what their intent is 
and letting it show through at the end. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of engineers that intend buildings to look completely different than they end up. And there's a lot of architects, too, that intend some beautiful buildings that don't look very good at the end of the day because no. you can't build them. So I, I really love the fact that that's coming together. And I see that more and more. I, I see that actively happening even today. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, we're talking about the trades here, but we talk about the glazers and understanding embeds and how yeah. we're going to hang curtain wall and we're starting to look at concrete. Yeah. We're looking at iron workers, all that knowledge. You know, that, that's another level on top of MEP. Sure, sure. Uh, so it seems like kind of breaking down the communication barriers is a, is a big hurdle that needs to be addressed and, and looked at. And Josh, you mentioned the need to build trust. How do you go about that in order to start building that collaboration that's needed? You know, I, I think it goes back to what you just said. It takes creating partnerships. Mm -hmm. The contracts have to reflect this. There has to be some intensification to know that how we work together and, and drawing some lines of, you know, you step through the process. You do. It's, it's not going to happen overnight. That There's been a lot of eroding of trust for many, many decades in this industry, sure. and we're not going to get it back overnight. We've got to start, and we can start in ways that, it depends on how we deliver it. I think if you put more, if you give the chance to get the trades at the front of the conversation mm -hmm. and to work with the designers and be part of that conversation, I think a lot of that will happen naturally because mm -hmm. the trades are in it for the good of the trades. I mean, yeah. it, you know, they have a lot of risk in the process, and I think it will help engineers be better at designing and to have conversations like, you know, this is why we do that in the field this way. And for the engineer to have that aha moment, mm -hmm. and for the engineer to have a conversation to say, here's why we design it this way, and for the, the trades to understand that, oh, that's why you design it that way, I think conversations will naturally lead us to yeah. having better respect for perspective. That's a conversation we have a yeah. lot, is that I need to have better respect for your perspective. Mm -hmm. You have a reason you do things the way that you do them, as the architect, as the engineer, as a tradesman, as a GC, mm -hmm. as an owner. They're a big part of this process. And I think through constant communication, getting out of our silos, and, and starting to have that more yeah. agile collaborative. Yes. It, it needs to be collaborative, and when we have these collaborative relationships, they're much better than this one way. Right now, it is throw bombs over at the wall at one another. You know, the <laughs> engineer throws a bomb at us, we throw a bomb at him. Sometimes they're RFIs, sometimes they're change orders. The trades throw bombs at the trades. The trades throw bombs at the trades. <laughs> There's something called first up is best dressed. Mm -hmm. That means go as fast as you can to get your stuff up and forget the other guy. Mm -hmm. And I'll tell you what's happening now, the models and the way they're at, first up is no longer best dressed. That's right. Yeah. First up better have planned on the guy that's above him because if they didn't, they're cutting their stuff down. And I think that that's a huge change that we've been seeing since modeling finally kind of reached it, reached its maturity. And I wouldn't say we're mature yet, but we're getting to the point where there's a model for everything and we're planning these things out so that it is a collaborative approach and not a competitive one. Yeah, we've seen a lot of change in the last six years in the industry, and I think the next three to four are going to be massively more exponential in change mm -hmm. than the past six, which have been significant. Yeah, that's saying something with all yeah. the change that's happened. Uh, one of the slides that I really liked was the big bin versus little bin. Uh, can you kind of quickly kind of unpack that, and what does the owner need to be educated on that in regards to the difference? Well, I, I think that's one that, that drives me up a wall because mm -hmm. I, so my interface all the time as CTO is with the owners mm -hmm. and the owners are, are looking at this cycle and, w and it starts with planning and it works down through this cycle. Mm -hmm. And the thing is, they, it is again just pitching it over to the wall to the next guy. And so, so when I look at the big BIM, 
I think that the big BIM needs to involve the little BIM. And if you guys don't know what the little BIM is, the little BIM is what naturally happened because contractors wanted to make money. Okay, that's why we did BIM at the beginning. Mm -hmm. We didn't do BIM because it was pretty. We didn't do BIM because it was technological. We did BIM so that we could fabricate because we wanted to make money. Mm -hmm. Cold facts. <laughs> it is what it is. And that was little BIM, and we learned a lot from that. We, mm -hmm. we you know, we started out with, with modeling just mechanical rooms because they were high dollar areas, and we moved to the rest of the building. And then we got to the point where we're like, I can't believe you planners made these decisions without us. And that's where the big BIM kind of falls apart for me is I really wanted to get that little BIM, that part that was about making this building efficient mm -hmm. and making it make money and put it in the first, in the beginning of it mm -hmm. so that the buildings we get are already ready to be optimized. And, and, and I think that what's being sold to the owner sometimes is that you need to go through this entire, you know, life cycle of BIM and it just doesn't work. You need everybody in there at once. You know, um, I can't tell you how many times we have stuff that's built solid in in the building and a facility gets a guy walks up underneath it reaches up and can't reach something and you go oh, now I'm gonna cut that down <laughs> and, and and that's a big deal it's a lot of money but if we get them involved up front if instead of big BIM and little BIM there's a collaborative model um, that represents all of the BIM on the job um, then we don't run into those problems and, and and that's what I think we need to be educating owners to say is you need to get a collaborative team working on your building not one person, then the next person, then the next person. Mm -hmm. That's a very poor way to build a building. Yeah, I like to look at BIM as a tool. That, you know, as we look at, at a job, we try to assess risk on that job. Mm -hmm. And there's, uh, you, you should kind of diagnose the job and look at it and understand. Let's, let's, let's get with the trades. Let's get with the owner. Let's really understand what you ultimately need. Mm -hmm. If you don't have a facilities management program and you're, you're asking for an as-built model as a deliverable, which we're seeing more and more of, it's we need to have a conversation. That virtual foreman needs to step up and take the lead and say, okay, I see that in your requirements for this job that you want BIM to be delivered, and I see that you want an as-built model delivered on the back end. Mm -hmm. While I respect that and you, you feel like you need that, and what has led you to that. You need to start having conversations mm -hmm. and you need to help them understand that BIM is a process. Mm -hmm. And this process is can be used to help, let, let's help us coordinate, let's help us get in the right places. Right. There's different aspects of BIM. Do we need to coordinate? Do we? How much do we need to coordinate? What can we fabricate off-site? Mm -hmm. What can we start to do from a 4D and 5D standpoint? Let's assess the risk and let's use BIM as an insurance policy to help us mitigate risk on this job. Mm -hmm. Let's not always look at it as a return on investment. Mm -hmm. Let's really look at it as a way that we can make sure that we're having the right conversations and educate owners on really what BIM is. It's breaking down the silos and us coming together. Mm -hmm. So it's to say big BIM and on every job, you know, I go by the term name BIM to the bone yeah. and I love BIM, but <laughs> to say that we want to do big BIM on every job is unrealistic. Mm -hmm. So you really need to diagnose the job, educate the owner and say, here's what, we, here's what we're going to deliver because this is what brings value to the most players on the project. Mm -hmm. Very nice. Well, thank you so much for your time, Josh and Jonathan. Mm -hmm. Really appreciate you guys taking the time to come on the show and doing the, the keynote. Uh, I think you're uh, encouraging message to the trades is, is something that needs to be heard out there. So thank, thank you guys you. so much. Thanks for listening to the Bridging the Gap podcast. Please spread the word by giving us a five-star review and share with your friends and coworkers. You can listen to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. 
Also, be sure to check out our other applied software podcast, the AEC Disruptors. Thanks for listening. Bridging the Gap is produced and directed by Alyssa Chartier, edited by Eric Daniel. Bridging the Gap is an applied software production, copyright Applied Software 2019.